Hello and welcome to Africa Now, the podcast that takes a fresh look at events on the continent and at how Africa relates to the rest of the world. I'm Martine Dennis. Today, what does Africa want from COP28? As the climate summit gets underway in Dubai, we ask the continent's climate czar, how likely is it to get what it wants? And we speak to a young Nigerian who's warning us that in the rush to kickstart production of green energy, not to forget the 600 million Africans who don't even have access to electricity. And they're off. We take a look at the runners and riders in the DR Congo presidential race. At the last count, there were more than 25 of them. Now, when I say we, I mean, of course, my co-conspirators, Donu Kogbara, the wily journalist and political commentator who's based in Abuja, the Nigerian capital. Hey, Donu, how are you doing? Well, after the fourth power cut in 10 minutes, I'm not in a great mood. Not a happy bunny. All right, we'll pick up on that a bit later. Patrick, the roving editor of Africa Confidential, what have you been up to? Uh, bonjour à tous. I've spent the last week in the French capital investigating what that wonderful organization, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, is doing. Um, and it seems they're in a big tussle with the African continent and sundry other countries uh, to control who pays what corporate tax in the world. And they've just lost a big battle at the UN. So I want to talk about that. All right, you get all the best jobs, don't you, Patrick? All the um, exciting stuff. <laughs> let's move on and introduce our first guest. Welcome to the Africa Now podcast, Carlos Lopez, Professor in the Mandela School of Governance in Cape Town and Chair of the Africa Climate Foundation. Thank you so much for talking to us, Carlos. I mean, we have to start our conversation, don't we, by talking about the two big news lines that have emerged this week. It's only Tuesday as we're talking, and that is... One, the allegations that Saudi Arabia is fostering African addiction to oil rather than cutting back. Uh, and also the other allegation that's, that uh, UAE, the COP presidency, is actually forging new deals in oil and gas all at a time, of course, when everyone is supposed to be cutting back. Does that rock your faith in COP28 and how the presidency is managing affairs? Well, my faith on rock uh, is to be rocked uh, with something bigger because it was already quite low. Um, I think the situation that we have uh, in front of us from an African perspective is that we may see uh, again uh, a play between the big and powerful uh, where they do proclamations, they uh, pledge lots of things. And there is really a pledging fatigue. People don't believe in most of the uh, pledges and they have uh, attained the limit of what they can trust in terms of volunteering action uh, on the climate uh, space. But this being said, uh, we are talking about two middle powers that are basically entering uh, the theater of uh, competition in Africa. Uh, UAE is one of the biggest investors in renewables uh, in Africa. Uh, Saudi Arabia is gearing up to become uh, quite present in the continent in different ways. So the African leaders are actually uh, looking into these two as possibly 
potential investors in their transitions. And they expect uh, to have in COP28 the possibility of actually discussing with them investments uh, in that area. So uh, it, it's a bit of a paradox uh, that the news uh, cycle is focusing more on what petrostates can do or not do in relation to climate. And revelations here and there are somehow a bit hypocritical because we have had cops in rich countries, polluters, uh, that we have not uh, um, faced the same uh, sort of scrutiny. But that that's uh, good for people to know. Uh, that we are in a world of uh, contradictions and where what is said and what is done uh, represents a big gap, and that gap is mistrust. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned these these deals, and, and you saw in the light of the African Climate Summit in Nairobi, I think um, UAE promised uh, $23 billion to African states for renewable energy by the by the end of this decade. Um, there's a piece in the FT saying that globally the UAE has pushed out, plans to push out $200 billion uh, on renewable projects. Do you think this summit is going to be more about those kind of deals than negotiations on promises to phase down, the arguments over phasing down and phasing out fossil fuels and stuff like that? So it's going to be a dealer's summit rather than a sort of diplomatic UN-style uh, promising summit? Well, uh, this uh, COP is uh, likely to have the largest ever gathering of this of the sorts, and we are expecting no less than 120 heads of state, maybe 80,000 participants. Uh, I think uh, the model and the methodology has, has run its course. It's no longer possible to negotiate under such circumstances. And what you have is basically a group of about 500 people that are busy negotiating language and uh, discussing paragraphs that are not very meaningful if we look into the 14 years of accumulated deficit between promises and implementation. And I'm not just referring to promises of money. I'm referring to promises in terms of action on climate. Um, and so these negotiations have uh, become a bit of a distraction and uh, people are expecting that most of the action is going to be amongst the key players, be it in the corporate world or powerful countries and groups of countries, in terms of what can really change uh, for us to reduce uh, the level of emissions and to increase our capacity for adaptation. And now we have added a third layer, which is the loss and damage, what we, we cannot even repair with adaptation. Um, and I think... Uh, we, we can be satisfied to a certain extent that the discussion today is not like 14 years ago. A lot has evolved. There is much more uh, uh, consciousness in terms of what needs to be done. And I think the scientific evidence has become now uh, very much matched by extreme weather events and other realities that people are facing. But... I think the model has exhausted its uh, purpose, mostly because we continue to separate climate and development, and they are one and the same. And, and, and what do you think should replace the model then, Carlos? 
I think the model is basically not to have uh, this distinction that has been done over time that we need to uh, do a certain number of things outside the regulatory framework to compensate for damage for the climate. And in practical terms, what it means is basically we have to stop talking about de-risking when we are basically investing on renewables and we are investing on energy transition in particular. Uh, why does it need to be de-risked? It needs to be de-risked because we are expecting some concessional lending, some public money, some uh, handouts that are going to compensate for the big players to move their money, their savings, their investments into the right things for the planet. And this doesn't make sense. Uh, and we are not going to replace uh, the disturbance of the current trade system by just creating a carbon market that is used as a greenwashing uh, tool yeah, exactly. for people to for people to continue to do exactly what they were doing, but now compensating with some sort of extra liquidity that they put into the right things. It's a bit like corporate social responsibility with a new face. And this is really not the way we are going to change the climate. So we need, in, in, in one line, uh, uh, Martin, we need a regulatory change that is going to create the right incentives. What is your sense of where we're going to land with this loss and damage fund it was the big breakthrough last year in egypt that the uh they could even get in a consensus over that there should be a loss and damage fund we spent the last year arguing about who's going to host this loss and damage fund who's going to contribute to it and how much it's going to be um are we any closer to an agreement on that and is it would it be capable of disrupting the whole summit if we don't get an agreement on it no, I think uh, we are over that ump, uh, the loss and damage fund operationalization, to use the jargon that uh, the negotiators like, is now uh, solved. Uh, we have a deal where the World Bank will have a fiduciary responsibility, but not necessarily be in charge of projects and program uh, prioritization, which right. is the way you know you can compensate for pushes from the north and the global south right. uh, and i think uh, what is uh, likely to happen is some sort of announcements that are going to be again with the same type as before pledging um, and then we shall see uh, how much of that pledging is going to be considered as a success or as a failure and it's a bit sad that this is the way most of these COPs are measured, is against this type of pledges. Uh, when in fact we know, and uh, it's, it's really evidence, uh, that on, in the last uh, uh, 10 or so COPs, all these pledges have not been translated into real action. Are we going to get a kind of beauty contest, do you think? I mean, you know, the hosts might come up with a massive pledge of money to the loss and damage fund. So the Europeans will be, they're, they're claiming they're going to announce some sort of substantial contribution. I don't know about America. America's been a bit quiet on this. China's been a bit quiet so far. But do you think we're we're going to see a sort of a wave of big pledges for the loss? And no, damage? I don't. I don't. I don't think it will be a wave, but I'm confident that the uh, 
hosts and some of their key allies are going to make substantial announcements because that's the trump card they have uh, they just made uh, extra liquidity with the rise of the oil prices so they do have that uh, margin of maneuver and they are going to use it obviously for reputational uh, purposes but also as an indication that in fact this is also a fight of a transition between you know a world that was regimented by uh, richer countries that are consuming and where the producers of um, all all the mechanisms and the regulations that uh, allowed for fossil fuel prosperity but also for for the world to become very dependent on it uh, towards a world where you know you'll have a multipolar uh, understanding of uh, trade and uh, finance, and they want to play their card. That's why uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia adhere to the BRICS Plus. So they want to show a certain degree of independence. And this is the first sort of act of this new uh, policy that they are trying to implement. And Carlos, what do you make of the African position, which seems to be pretty much firmly focused on using gas as the the just transitional fuel. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it's only marginally cleaner, as I understand it, than, than using oil. Well, I think uh, the, the debate in Africa uh, to try to get as much uh, mileage as possible with new gas discoveries in particular, but also other fossil fuels, is based on the premise that we are not getting in Africa investments for renewables, not commensurate to the needs and not in a proportion that would allow to address the issue of uh, energy access, which is a very different equation from countries that are uh, struggling with energy security. In Africa, if you really have uh, some sort of uh, possibility of empowering your economy by having access to energy, you don't want to forego such an opportunity. And do you have much more easiness in getting uh, finance for it than you have for uh, renewables because of this de-risking mentality in particular. Uh, it is true that Africa has been investing on renewables, uh, but not uh, in the proportion that we have in terms of investments on fossil fuels. And it is very important for people to realize that 40% 40, 40 of African exports are in fossil fuels. So it's very difficult to change the trade uh, pattern of the continent in one go. It will take time. And given the fact that Africa is not a polluter uh, of the proportion of other regions, and actually, if you take into account its capacity to uh, sequestrate uh, uh, some of the emissions, we can even say that Africa is a, a net contributor of the positive. Mm. Uh, of course, this gives uh, political mileage to, to have a much slower transition. Donu, I was going to reintroduce you. Donu has now rejoined us, thankfully. Um, largely, you've been in and out of the, our conversation because of erratic power supply. Exactly. I'm not exaggerating. Electricity has been withdrawn six times since I tried to get onto this podcast about 20 minutes ago. And um, what I wanted to ask Carlos is, we have morons who can barely cope with electrical, the provision of electricity 
in traditional ways? Will they be able to manage green renewables? I mean, it's taken them how many decades to master traditional electricity provision? Will they be able to cope with a new system? Well, they're uh, not very bright. <laughs> well, you, you are touching a, a, a very important issue, which is the capacity of countries to manage properly their economies. And of course, energy and other enablers are absolutely essential. And I think uh, the, the right typology to divide African countries is to say that some are reformists and really want to do the right things in terms of uh, structural transformation of their economies. And uh, the majority, unfortunately, are still rent seekers. And the difference between the two is that, you know, the structural transformation process does require uh, a certain level of ambition, a certain level of coherence, a certain level of alignment uh, that comes with, uh, you know, a smart state and the possibility of these uh, different countries to really move the needle from uh, commodity dependence to uh, value addition. Uh, that's the only way you can increase the productivity of the economy. So in a case like Nigeria, we are in the opposite situation where uh, the um, uh, tax pressure uh, in, in the economy is so low, uh, you have about 6%, which is one of the lowest in the world. The average in the world is 35%, uh, which is basically a translation of the reality that most of the state does not leave out of the full economy, but rather leaves out of oil. Uh, because that's where it gets 90% uh, of its uh, resources. And the, the, the damage to the economy is that, you know, the government survives with oil, doesn't care about the rest. So you can't, you know, it's not important to have or not electricity, provided, you know, the resources are still coming from fossil fuel exports. And uh, we need to change that sort of mentality. We're going to let you go now, Carlos. Thank you so much for talking to us. Carlos Lopez, who is uh, now going to be making his way uh, to Dubai to sort out the mess that seems to be <laughs> <laughs> seems to be swirling around uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Carlos, thank you. Well, thank bye, you. Ash, Carlos. Thanks thank very you. much for joining us. Great to see you. you. Best of luck in Dubai. Thank you. Yep. So that's enough from us oldies. I mean, we've had our say, haven't we, at length. Um, let's hear from a young voice. Let's hear from a young Nigerian researcher, Immaculata Abba. Uh, Donnie, she's not too far away from you. She's in Abuja. Okay. Immaculata, nice to meet you. Um, nice to meet you. I hope you've had better luck with the power supply than I have this morning. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, I'm a bit of an oldie. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. And <laughs> my, my generation are not sufficiently invested in this whole climate change debate. A lot of them aren't interested at all. And um, some, and many people know nothing about it. So, do you find that your generation is more knowledgeable, more interested? I can say that I know more people in my generation who are more knowledgeable and more interested. I don't know if that's I can I can't really say that they are generally more knowledgeable and more interested because I think the Nigeria we live in young and older people are in it. It's not a conversation. You don't turn on NTA or AIT or channels and see a climate conversation at any time. But there are organizations like Susti Vibes, 
individuals like the founder of Susty Vibes, there's Ohosa Irahin, people who I know like right now, when I log on to social media, when I go on Twitter, Instagram, they're talking and they're also doing things um, to raise more awareness on both climate change as this global phenomenon that's happening, but also how it translates to the Nigerian slash African experience. Can I just ask you, the um, young people who are interested in climate change, are they funded, all funded by foreign organizations? Yeah, by and large, right. at least the ones I know. And Immaculata, um, how do you feel um, generally, and, and, and yeah, I'm not asking you to be representative of an entire uh, uh, age demographic, but um, do you feel that you actually have influence in this debate? Do you feel that you've got some some and some some agency can you make a difference or are you feeling like some young people that i know here in london who feel a little bit overwhelmed and quite powerless and in fact are quite anxious about the whole climate debate personally i don't feel like much of what i do will make a difference in a significant way i believe in the power of you know talking i believe in the power of research I believe in the power of like going out, looking at things, having your own point of view and saying, oh no, this doesn't look right. And saying it as much as possible, you know, writing where you can, presenting your findings where you can. But I am not under any illusions that I can change things just because I am speaking about them. And if you look at, like specifically looking at Nigeria in terms of what's the government doing, what's the government prioritizing, I feel even less, um, I feel like my agency means even less in Nigeria than it means in the world. I feel like that it's more likely that global institutions, global organizations will listen to me and take me seriously than my own Nigerian government. Do you think that there's going to be a wave of climate action in Nigeria? I mean, you've got those protests in Uganda about the pipeline. They're saying absolutely not. The government shouldn't be doing a pipeline to Tanzania, transporting oil when we're talking about going green. Do you sense, I mean, across government, you can be sceptical. What about your generation? Is there any any mobilization around we, we must go renewable or we've just the main thing is just actually getting power to people because that's the most important thing to drive the economy. Yes, I would say that it's definitely, we need to get more power to people. We need to reduce poverty. We need to increase more people's resources and access right. to like making a living for themselves. So we've seen what like what continues to happen in Niger Delta and the Ogoni communities and oil and all of that. Definitely there are protests and people are very unhappy and every now and then you get riots. And I think I would say that I generally see even more political action from young people, but it's not a climate changed, the more climate change banner protest. It's more, this is poverty. This is, we can't eat. We don't have access to electricity. We don't have access to energy for anything we need to do. We'll take electricity from anywhere we can get it. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's All right, Immaculata, I want to thank you very much indeed for coming to talk to us. Um, and giving giving a, a youthful perspective on the situation from uh, from Abuja. Thank you, Immaculata Abba. Right, let's get on with you now, Donu. You're in a foul mood, understandably. <laughs> understandably, you've had you've had power on, off, on, off for the whole podcast so far. So you haven't been able to 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 regale us with your usual 
um, <laughs> fluency and expansiveness. Um, but you, um, you've got other issues that you wanted to tell us about uh, in Nigeria today uh, that hopefully, with the power uh, still connected, we can hear about. One of the things that struck me this week was hearing about an attack on an army, a government army in Freetown. And I think the thing that really surprised me in a way was how unsurprised I was. Because I think that kind of thing happens so often in Nigeria, attacks on government security installations, that, you know, one becomes desensitized and nonchalant almost. Um, and so it's interesting to see that in another country, it was a big deal. I'm not sure it would be a big deal here. Where my mother comes from in the southeast, for example, there was a recent attack on a police station and 11 policemen were killed. And I think it was probably only referred to fleetingly, you know. Um, in River State, where my father comes from or came from, I still talk about my parents in the present tense, I'm in denial. Um, there have been about three shooting incidents in the past fortnight. And no, and nobody is particularly concerned. Nobody's raising any any uh, questions as to what's going on, who's doing the shooting, and what do they want? Well, you know, <clears throat> there are concerns, and there there is some news coverage, um, but it's just it, you don't hear about those people being arrested. It's not front page news. It's kind of like taken for granted that there will be unpleasant incidents every day, attacks on soldiers, attacks on police, attacks on each other. So the Sierra Leonean situation seemed almost tame by comparison. Well, that's a very, very sad uh, state of affairs in Nigeria. All right, Patrick, now you've been um, frequenting the swankier parts of Paris. What have you got to tell us? Well, yeah, I went down to the OECD. That's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a weird organization um, set up essentially by rich countries to police the world's financial system. Um, only recently have they allowed countries from the quote unquote global south to, to, to join as associate members. And this week there was a big row because a group of African states led by Nigeria, no less, Donu, um, went to the UN and their objective was to wrest control on who makes tax laws governing the big multinational corporations around the world. And the amazing thing is that Nigeria won. Hands down, they got 130 or more countries to back them and the OECD could only get 38. Uh, why this is important is that revenue and capital is fleeing um, the global south for safer destinations, they say, de-risk destinations in, in, in the West, particularly the US with its strong dollar and, and Europe and so on. So this was a battle over jurisdiction, essentially. But it was about how much tax you've got to pay in Africa as about how much tax multinationals should be paying in Africa, or they should be paying to their own uh, chosen jurisdictions, places like British Virgin Islands. So it's a big deal, but it's also symbolic of a big global 
uh, fight between the global south and the and the rich world. I know it's really, really important, but I think that uh, Donu and I are going to leave you to deal with that little, uh, that little <laughs> chestnut. Okay, Donu and I are much more interested in other things. So, Patrick, you keep it. You keep across that for us, will you? Of course. <laughs> um, and from one from one Patrick to another, we're going to be talking now to Patrick Edmund. He's the managing consultant of Africa Matters Limited. That's a part of JS Herald, and he knows a lot about the Democratic Republic of Congo. Campaigning's got underway there in the presidential election. And Patrick, there are what? More than 25 candidates, including a Nobel Prize winning gynecologist, um, Mr. Fayulu, who some people say actually won the last election, um, Mr. Kutumbi from the uh, Katanga region, uh, among so many others. Take us through who's actually got a chance and why are they all bothering to put their hat in the ring? Thanks, Martin. Yeah, great to be here. I mean, the, the list is long. Um, it's officially uh, 24, although now uh, three of them have thrown their hats behind one of the opposition candidates, but it's still a sort of messy picture facing um, the incumbent, uh, Felix Chisikedi. Uh, of most of that list, I wouldn't really put much store behind uh, the, their chances of victory. The ones we're looking at as, as being sort of, of, of interest are, are the ones you've mentioned. It's, it's Moise Katumbi, who before Katanga province was cut up into, into pieces. He was the, the governor for many years. Um, he's he's uh, a businessman of, of significant personal wealth. He's been involved in the mining sector for, for a long time. Um, then uh, Martin Fayulu, who uh, claims he won the last election in 2018. The Catholic um, Church also supported him, Patrick, didn't they? The vast majority of, of, of Congolese thought that Martin Fayulu had won. Uh, not, not for me to say, Martin, but uh, uh, <laughs> the, uh, certainly, yes, uh, a, contested, a contested result uh, afterwards. And, and um, I, I think, you know, his, that's his... Uh, the, the the banner of his campaign will be you know um, I, I'm I'm the, the the president who deserves to be to be there and and you know got a second chance of voting me in um, although that does put a bit of a spanner in the works of, of the chances of him ever uh, clubbing together with Moses Katumbi who now feels that he's the the, the rightful president um, so uh, then the third person of interest uh, the Nobel Prize winning gynaecologist uh, Dennis Mukwege. Um, Less of a political pedigree, less of a, uh, a political base, even um, very popular among among the diplomats, uh, and has a weight of moral clarity that, um, if he put his voice behind one of the other uh, the other candidates, might might sway the balance. Um, but yeah, at the moment, what we're looking at is is a divided opposition, mildly less divided than it was a few weeks ago. Uh, but still divided with a uh, strong incumbent. Um, and important to, to highlight here, you know, the, the, the president isn't alone. He's stacked his, uh, his cabinet with uh, political heavyweights um, who've been around the houses for years and years. I mean, the, the names Jean-Pierre Bemba will ring in the ears of those who followed the, the war in the DRC since the late to, uh, since the late 1990s. Spent some time in The Hague, as I recall. <laughs> he did indeed, um, and, and slipped away uh, uh, and, 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 has, and has made a resurgence under this, under this president. 
Um, and has, to a certain extent, you know, thrown his made it clear that that uh, he's a coalition partner and and not a um, uh, and not a lackey. Um, other figures in there being uh, Vital Camere, the president's current president, former chief of staff, who uh, again went to jail for corruption charges, uh, managed to to find his way out, and um, and is is now also a vice prime minister. Assumption is for now that that uh, people will stay in place, but there will be some very interesting things to watch. Um, firstly, if the opposition managed to uh, come to an agreement. Um, and second, if uh, if some of the minor elements, the less uh, the the non Chiskedi elements, the non UDPS elements of the uh, of the ruling coalition uh, manage to, to to win significant votes, um, and therefore you might have a very different government uh, going into twenty twenty four. Even in countries where democracy actually works marginally well. Um, 25 candidates is very optimistic because, you know, out of the 25, probably only a, a third or a quarter stand a chance. So how much, and they stand even less of a chance in a typical African democracy in inverted commas, where it's extremely difficult to beat incumbents. Um, or rather, it's easy to beat incumbents, but they never admit that they've been beaten. So um, what are the 25 playing at? Is this the triumph of hope over experience or are they just trying to boost their profiles so that, you know, they get name recognition and they become more well-known and possibly even wind up having some bargaining power with which to become ambassadors or ministers or whatever? I think if you've hit the nail on the head on the, the bargaining power point, that that will definitely be a, uh, for those who have long-term political uh, uh, ambitions, it's something that they, you know, they can, they can throw their hat in the ring, prove their worth, and then next time around they might get a ministerial post or maybe even get included in the, in the primary platform. Some of them, I think, are genuinely uh, motivated by by a desire to see democratic development in the country. Um, there is one female candidate Marie Jose Foku, um, she uh, ran last time around, and uh, for for all intents and purposes, it, it appears to be that she has a genuine belief in the progress of Congolese democracy. Um, there are others who are sort of starting out on their political careers. There's uh, a former banker, Floribert Anzaluni, who for a period of time was the policy advisor to the Century. Um, who have spent a lot of time digging into Congolese corruption, and, and uh, it doesn't seem to me that he's 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 willing to sort of uh, uh, flip his script and, and and jump into bed with a, um, a, a another major political party for now. So um, they're, they're a mix a mixed picture, and, and uh, certainly some less uh, less savoury figures. Um, a chap called Noel Chiani, who's been promoting a a law in the DRC that uh, presidential candidates should only be viable if they are born of both uh, father and mother. Um, what do people actually vote for, Patrick, in, in DRC? Do they vote on issues? Uh, do they vote on policies? Do people have manifestos? Or is it just a personality race? Personalities are a big part of it. I think uh, you can't underestimate the moral strength of and the willingness of Congolese voters to 
to vote on their principles. It was shown the last time around, and you know we've discussed the uh, um, the, the the potential result that uh, emerged in 2018. You know this was a, a clear protest in any form against uh, against the incumbent, despite the enormous resources and political strength that, that uh, former President Kabila had um, to put behind his, his chosen candidate. Um, so, but, uh, you know, you don't see manifestos in the same same way. Um, and there is certainly a lot of, uh, I guess you might call it um, retail politics at the street level, whether it's in terms of uh, uh, just getting people on the street and excited. Um, I just a few months ago was in a small mining town uh, in, in the DRC and speaking to a, a young gentleman and he was uh, telling me very proudly about how uh, he was he was one of the youth coordinators for the local governor, who is um, a strong ally of the current president, and how how much he's looking forward to getting uh, rewarded for um, for bringing uh, an, a certain number of people to the protest the next day um, to get a house or a laptop or a phone, um, and, and that's that's reproduced at multiple different levels and, uh, and and all across the country, and and I think it does have a genuine effect on um, getting the vote out. What what about um, economics? You know, Congo famously is the uh, scandal uh, geologique. It's got every mineral known to man or beast or woman, come to th think of it. Um, in that order. In, in that order. Well, you know, whoever got there first, the beasts got there first, I think. <laughs> so maybe it should be beasts, women and men. How about that, Martin? Touché. <laughs> Touché. Um, so cobalt, for example, is meant to be the new force that's driving the electric vehicle industry. Um, I spoke to a Congolese um, official a few months back, and he was telling me that our country is the Saudi Arabia of cobalt. We are producing 70% of the world's cobalt, and we're going to get rich, 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 because um, everyone's going to need cobalt to run their electric cars on and their, their batteries and so forth. But it seems that most of this stuff is just being dug up out of the ground. It used to be the Americans. Now it's the Chinese. They're putting on ships and taking it to uh, Shanghai or um, uh, Guangzhou or wherever, but they're not refining it in Congo. It, it, are people criticizing Chishikedi for failing to get the uh, refining and processing of Congo's mineral wealth in train so the country benefits more from it? I think this is a really interesting point about what kind of filters down to the street and, and what such a difficult governance challenge that is hard to get results, you know, in the, in the short term. At Africa Matters, we spend quite a lot of time uh, working on, on these kind of issues and, and, and discussing with government officials about, about their plans to move these sort of things forward. There is a project underway for um, uh, extending the value chain further down to include more refining in, in country. Um, but the requirements to encourage investment, to put in place infrastructure um, are so enormous that this is, this is a very long-term project. Uh, one thing that Chiskeli might be able to say back to, to his his his, uh, his um, detractors on the Chinese question is that he has quite robustly pushed against contracts that he thinks are unfair. Patrick Edmund, thank you very much for talking to us on the Africa Now podcast, and we will 
continue to scrutinise what's going on in DRC as those elections are due for December the 20th, I think. Anyway, that's all for this edition of Africa Now. We'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. Africanowpodcast at gmail.com is our email. I'm on X or Twitter, at Martine Dennis, and if you're enjoying what we're doing, do leave a review and rate us. Give us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our guests, Patrick, Immaculata and Carlos. We recorded this on Tuesday, November the 28th, 2023, with the technical skills of Matthew McConway. Craig Ferryman and Anne Busby were our producers. Our original music is by Enric Adam. From Donu, Patrick and me, thank you for your company. <laughs>